Hi, welcome to Hymn We Proclaim with Dr. John Fonville. We're making our way through a series celebrating the Reformation called Five Solas. Today we start our third message called Sola Gratia, Grace Alone. It's our only cause. There's probably not a person on earth who doesn't struggle with the concept that we simply cannot earn our salvation. Rather, salvation comes to us as a lavish, undeserved gift called grace. Some profound truths ahead. Here's John with part two of Sola Gratia, our only cause. Third, grace is the efficient cause of our entire salvation. God's grace is not grounded in what people do or don't do. The efficient cause of our salvation consists solely in the Father's love, solely in the grace and mercy given freely to us in the Son. Sinful men are forgiven, converted, justified, sanctified, glorified. They are, quote, saved from beginning, middle, and end, not because of anything that is in them or anything that could ever be in them. Sinful men are saved solely out of the boundless love, goodness, pity, compassion, mercy, and grace of our God. So when the reformers were speaking about grace alone, they were saying that sinners have no claim upon God. God owes them nothing but punishment for their sins. That's all we deserve. You don't want what you've merited and deserve. God saves us in spite of our sins, and it pleases him to do it, and for no other reason but to do that. You see, God's grace is grounded in his sovereign freedom and willingness to show grace to whomever he pleases. This is exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verse 15, when he quotes Exodus 33, verse 19, where the Lord says to Moses, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. In Ephesians chapter 2, You can turn back there because I want you to look at that. That's our main text today. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul announces the startling good news that God has decided to show mercy to those who are dead in trespasses and sins. That is demerited favor. Look at this contrast in verses 1 to 3. We'll just read, look at this. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Both Jew and Gentile, he condemns right there, everybody is dead in their trespasses and sins. And note the contrast with verses 1 and 3 to verses 4 through 10. Let me just walk you through this. Chapter 2, verse 1, to the Ephesian Gentiles, Paul says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy, to the Ephesian Gentiles, verse 2. This is how you formerly lived your life. According to the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of now working in the sons of disobedience, but God being rich in mercy. 
to both Jew and Gentile in chapter 2, verse 3. He says, we all too formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. He's saying that our salvation is all of grace, beginning, middle, and end. The entire Christian life from start to completion is lived on the basis of God's grace to us through Christ alone. Paul begins this letter in Ephesians 1, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He continues this letter, Ephesians 2, 5 and 8. By grace you have been saved. He concludes this letter, Ephesians 6, verse 24. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus with incorruptible love. It is grace, grace, grace. The scheme of the Christian life is not grace works grace. It's grace, grace, grace. Paul makes this very succinct statement in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He says, he saved us, how? Not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Grace is the efficient cause of our salvation. It is the fountain and source of faith. It is the first and last moving cause of our salvation. We are saved through faith, but salvation is by grace alone. And that's good news for sinners who have received something in spite of their sin, right? So that's grace. Here's the second. What does grace look like as it is applied in the life of sinners? Let me give you two examples this morning very quickly. We're going to do a jet tour through the Old Testament with two characters that the Bible presents to us. The first is Abraham. If you go back and look at this Genesis account of Abraham... Grace is a key theme interwoven into this historical narrative. When we read the Genesis narrative about Abraham, it is brutally honest and it's warts and all about the portrayal of this man. First, there's no hint in the Genesis narrative that God chose Abraham because of his goodness. There's no hint. Just like the account of Noah that precedes Abraham, the Genesis narrative doesn't set forth anything worthy of Abraham that is deserving of the Lord calling him and choosing him. In fact, it's quite the opposite. In Joshua 24, verse 2, it says that Abraham grew up in a pagan family that, quote, served other gods. So there's no use in asking why the Lord chose Abraham and not some other person out of the mass of condemned humanity at that time to be the father of a blessed race. But like Noah, the Lord elected Abraham, chose Abraham, whom Paul in Romans 4 verse 5 describes Abraham as an ungodly man. The Lord's freely given election of Abraham is grace. Election is grace. This is what Paul says in Romans eleven six. 6. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Election and grace are inseparable because both show us that salvation is God's work alone and that it has nothing to do with our works. 
Second, when you look at the Genesis account of Abraham, it shows us that the Lord justifies Abraham, right? Genesis 12 and 15. But immediately after Abraham is justified, immediately after he sins, Genesis chapter 12, verses 11 through 20. And then in chapter 20, verses 1 through 18, we also see another occasion where he does the same thing again. Both times, what does he do? He lies about his wife to preserve his life. That wouldn't go well for me. (laughs) Bad Sunday afternoon lunch at that point. He was willing to put his marriage at risk with Sarah rather than trust in the Lord's promises made to him. Genesis chapter 16. Abraham and Sarah were promised a child. They were a little bit old, and they're thinking, "Um, this is not going to happen. So let's cooperate together, and let's get Hagar and make God's promise come. And so they both reveal their lack of faith in the Lord's promise of a child, and they actually work to undermine the Lord's promise that Sarah would be the mother of the promised descendants. So instead of trusting in the Lord's promise, they try by their own works to bring about the Lord's promise with Hagar, and we know how that story ended. Not too good. We're still paying the price today. And even though James, in the book of James, sets forth the account of Abraham's obedience born from faith in Genesis 22, when the Lord uh, called him to sacrifice his only promised son, who was the offspring to carry on the Lord's promise, it is clear from the Genesis narrative that we do not see God's grace to Abraham as something that was deserved or meriting anything by cooperation. It's quite the opposite. At best, what we see in the life of Abraham is what Martin Luther drove the Roman medieval church crazy with, Simo Eustace et Peccator. In justification, Abraham was at the one and at the same time righteous or just, and he was also a sinner. In and of ourselves, under God's scrutiny, we still have sin and we're still sinners, but only by the imputation, the reckoning of Jesus' perfect righteousness to our account through faith alone, by grace alone, listen, are we considered just or righteous before God? And that is the heart of the gospel. So Abraham's entire life was lived under the reign of grace. It was lived under God's unilateral covenant promise, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, where he says over and over, Abraham, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Paul quotes that promise of Genesis 12, verse 3, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, and he calls Genesis 12, 3, the gospel promise beforehand to Abraham. That's grace. And so clearly the Genesis account of Abraham says forth the Lord's free and sovereign grace to this ungodly man. Second, not only do we see this kind of lavish grace given to Abraham, we see it all the way back, a few chapters back to the beginning, to Adam. 
Grace is also a key theme interwoven into the historical account of Adam in Genesis. In the opening chapters of Genesis, they reach their climax when, this, when the offended Lord of the covenant of works comes to judge his servant Adam for his rebellion in the covenant of works, his breaking of the covenant of works, Genesis 2, 15 through 17. And what we see from the book of Genesis is that God created man to live in a joyful, intimate relationship with his creator based on obedience to God's moral will. But tragically, man turned his back on his covenant Lord in this self-willed act of idolatrous rebellion. And what happens, Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, this whole relationship is now marked and characterized by separation and by fear and by dread. And so Adam and Eve, knowing that their creator had become their judge and that they had come under the penalty of the covenant of works, what do they do? It's the first attempt in the Bible at self-justification. They attempt to cover up their nakedness, their exposure, their guilt, their rebellion before God, and they put fig leaves on themselves. They're trying now to keep the covenant of works, but it's too late. And so the Bible, listen, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, says that they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they immediately hid themselves in fear from his presence. This word sound in the Hebrew is voice. What did Adam and Eve hear? They heard the voice of the Lord. They heard the word of the Lord. What was the word that they heard? It was the word of judgment, law. While hiding, God calls out in judgment to Adam, where are you in relationship to me now that you have broken my covenant? This is a question of covenantal judgment. Where do you stand before me, Adam, now that you have broken my covenant? And Adam replies to God's question of judgment, I heard the sound, I heard your word, I heard the voice of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Listen carefully. Prior to the fall, the first Adam did not need grace. Grace is for sinners, not for the sinless. Adam was sinless. And so because of that, grace was not in Adam's vocabulary. Unlike the law, grace was not in Adam by nature. The gospel is not in us by nature. The gospel is not lodged somewhere in my heart. In my mind, in my will, in my emotions, it is an announcement that comes from outside of me, that comes to me as foolishness, like Sarah's response to the Lord's promise of a child, and she simply laughed. And so by virtue of his creation, Adam was wired only for the law, and Adam and we, and we like Adam, only understood law. He didn't understand grace. It wasn't there yet. 
And so Adam rightly hid in fear because his expectation was judgment, and it was a right expectation. While hiding, as I said, they tried to reconcile this broken covenant relationship with God by, by keeping the covenant of works with these fig leaves, but the Lord of the covenant would not accept his obedience, would not accept his fig leaves at this point. The covenant of works was broken, and the sanction of the Lord of the covenant was the execution death. Adam's fearful response becomes the reply of every human conscience that is fully exposed to the presence of a holy and righteous lawgiver. And it's tragic because that's not how it was designed to be. Yet surprisingly, the lawgiver reveals himself to Adam not as the God of law, but as the God of promise. Adam hiding spitless in fear, knowing what is about to happen, had no idea really what was about to happen. The Lord promises in Genesis 3.15 to send a second Adam who would fulfill the work that the first Adam failed to do, and thus therefore by that work bring his people to the tree of life and the blessed state for which they were created. And into the darkness and despair and fear and guilt and shame of his sin, Adam's catastrophe, listen, a light came into his darkness, a shining beam of hope coming from the God of promise who made this startling, shocking, surprising announcement I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That is the first announcement of the gospel in the Bible. The Lord promises a redemption that would be accomplished by the offspring of Eve, this serpent crusher, this champion seed of the woman. And so the Bible is very simple. From Genesis 3, 15 forward, the Bible is simply the unpacking of the Lord's unconditional, unilateral, gracious promise through the covenant of grace that though death entered the world through one man's fall and disobedience, one day a child would be born from the offspring of Eve who would restore all things and crush the serpent's head. And so the Bible presents this unfolding story of the triune God's gracious plan to save sinners through his son, Jesus Christ. And that is what's called sola gratia. That's what grace looks like applied by the triune God to sinners. And so finally this morning as we finish, what is the ultimate purpose of this grace? What is his ultimate purpose? Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1. Turn over one chapter from Ephesians 2. Three times in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that God's ultimate purpose in salvation is for the praise of his glory in saving sinners. Everything that our triune God does, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in concert together, is designed to bring about his own glory 
Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. He has predestined us, verse 5, look, and adopted us as sons, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved, that is, in Jesus, who is the capital B, beloved. Look at verse 12. He says, to the end that we who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. And then look at verse 14. The Holy Spirit has been given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. He says it three times. It doesn't take a Bible scholar to get that point, right? Grace alone is the efficient cause of our salvation, the total package. And the praise of God's grace and kindness is the final cause of our salvation. Ephesians 2, verse 7, I read it earlier. By grace you have been saved, verse 5, verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Look at that. The immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What an amazing God we have. His kindness. God's mercy and grace given through Christ to sinful man is the capstone of his glory. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, that the gospel gives to us, what does the gospel give to us? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. God's glory, not man's glory, is the central focus of the gospel. And he is glorified by saving sinful men who have a demerited status. Paul says the gospel, according to Christ, compels him, Galatians 6, verse 14, to do nothing but boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, self-love, self-promotion, self-justification, self-exaltation, self-importance, these are the driving desires of the fallen heart. But the gospel attributes all glory to our triune God revealed perfectly in Christ and nothing to man. It takes away and condemns all of our glory, all of our wisdom, all of our reason, all of our righteousness, all of our goodness and attributes all of it to Christ alone. So this is why we must stay with Scripture alone because it is the only place where we are told that sinners are saved by the unprovoked and undeserved, demerited favor of God revealed to us in Christ, which is not to exalt us, but it is to exalt Him. And that's counter to everything that is human that we know. So as we consider this Reformation pillar this morning, uh, sola gratia, grace alone, I want us to remember this as we finish, that this little Latin phrase reminds us that our entire life, beginning, middle, and end, 
is lived under the reign of God's grace. Listen to Augustus Toplady as we finish. It provides a fitting conclusion. He says this, A true believer lives upon free grace as his necessary food. And indeed, he who has really tasted the sweetness of grace can live upon nothing else. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that you have given to us in Christ. Our hearts are profoundly humbled for such a lavish gift, but our hearts are profoundly thankful and rejoicing that from beginning, middle, and end, our entire life is lived under the reign of grace, which means it is lived under the perfect person and work of our Savior, Christ. We give thanks to you this morning and say glory be to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And blessed be your kingdom now and forevermore. We pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks, John. That's part two of Sola Gratia, our only cause. More from the Five Sola series coming up next time. The mission of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. And it's our prayer that your heart will be filled with joy and a clear understanding of the gospel and God's word. If you want to hear a past broadcast, check out our podcast in iTunes or download our app. Just search for Dr. John Fonville in iTunes or Google Play. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to visit Pastor John's church in Jacksonville, Florida, you're always welcome. You can find out more at ParamountChurch.com. I'm Josh Montez. Thanks for listening and join us next time.